Does culture affect economic progress? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Claudia Williamson. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Claudia Williamson. Claudia is the ProBasco Distinguished Chair of Free Enterprise and Professor of Economics at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. She is also the Director of the Centre for Economic Education. Her main research interests lie at the intersection of applied economic development and political economy. She has authored over 50 articles in refereed journals, including the Journal of Law and Economics, World Development, Journal of Comparative Economics, Public Choice, and the Journal of Corporate Finance, just to name a few. She has also co-edited two books, contributed multiple chapters to edited books, and written book reviews and policy briefs. Her research has also appeared in popular press outlets such as The Economist and the BBC. Claudia, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a question and go wherever the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, does culture affect economic progress? And there's a lot to explore there. And what I usually like to do on a topic like this, where it can go many directions, is really first establish some context and what, how we're using terms really before jumping right into some other meat of the matter. So first, I'd like to get into your explanation of what you mean by culture. Like in in one of your papers, you get necessarily technical about it, but really for the sake of this conversation, at least to start, I really mean like when we boil it down to to its essence. How would you summarize what we mean for the context of this conversation if we talk about culture? When economists talk about culture, they do have something more specific in mind, as probably most people would expect. We do mean something a little bit more detailed, especially given the question in terms of how it relates to economic progress. And so economic culture to us would be something, norms or values, informal rules. So we can think of them as at culture as part of the informal institutions And what it does is it provides constraints. And so the same way that we think about rules of the game or in general, our institutional environment, culture is part of that. So our norms or our beliefs or our values are going to shape the way that we see the world. And so oftentimes what we will do is then we will pick um, certain types of norms or cultures or traits that we want to analyze. A lot of... uh, Recent studies within culture and economics has focused on this idea of individualism versus collectivism. And so you can think of it as a spectrum. And what that means is if you're more individualistic, you would have cultural traits or cultural norms that would satisfy um, beliefs such as individual responsibility as compared to something like you believe that some collective, such as the government, should have more responsibility over you or or your group. So again, when you think of it more of a, as a continuum on one stream, being very individualistic would be that you believe in individual responsibility. You take one takes care of themselves. You can still be part of groups, but when it comes down to it, the way that you see um, your identity or the way that you function in the world is much more as an individual and then part of a group versus once you go to the other extreme as more collectivist values that you value your group success over your individual success, which translates into things like um, valuing a collective having say over you. 
And so where we see this kind of map out into economics or other kind of norms and beliefs that shake out of that is are things like obedience, for example, or how innovative you might be. And so individualistic cultures tend to have people who are more risk-taking, who aren't very obedient, and but yet they're more creative and um, innovative. And so we can then start to see how that we can theorize and hypothesize would relate to things like entrepreneurship and economic growth. On the other end, with collectivist norms, you're going to also see more obedient cultures, less risk-taking, um, more subservient, and um, then that we've also seen how that's related to less entrepreneurship, but less innovation, less growth. And so that just gives you really one aspect, one that's probably gained the most traction of what we mean by economic culture or the type of culture, or cultural norms that economists care about, at least in terms of our research. Right. No, no, that's an excellent overview. I think that's great. And I, and I do want to drill a little further into it to frame our conversation today as, as far as, um, you know, as far as, again, because it's easy to say, well, does culture affect economic progress? But then, of course, in, in your papers and your work, you, you define what questions we're actually ax- asking a little further. So in one of your uh, papers, you sort of basically, at least the way I interpreted it, like really come up with two important sort of pillar framing devices for the rest of what's in there and, and to frame and go a little further into exactly what we mean by culture affecting economic progress. So first, you, and you basically say in the paper that first, it's important to ask whether, quote, certain cultural attributes either encourage or discourage institutions associated with economic freedom. That's one thing. Then you basically say it's only then we can ask whether the success or failure of formal economic institutions depends on pre-existing informal rules and, and essentially culture. So to, to get a little nerdier here on purpose, I do actually want to get into to each of those as sort of like okay. a pillar before I get into more of a deep dive of specific elements of culture. So let's let's do that first part first. Like when we talk about, quote, asking whether certain cultural attributes either encourage or discourage institutions associated with economic freedom. Can you give us a little more insight into how you are specifically going further to frame the question? Absolutely. So to give context to what we mean also by economic freedom, because it's not always people starting out on the same page with a word or a phrase like that. Um, so economic freedom in general, and the way that I use it in my research means something like to describe the um, economic system that would have private property rights. And so uh, we're getting at also thinking of socialism versus capitalism in the old school way of, of using those words or the classical liberal way that we used to use the word capitalism means private property of the means of production. And so within economic freedom, that is what you have. You have the ability to own land, your labor, capital, equipment, you know, your human capital and apply it as you see fit. So that would be under an economically free system. Um, We also um, tend to think of things like free trade. So more open borders, uh, stable money. Um, That can, again, can be somewhat more relative, especially in in today's climate, but that, you know, the the central bank is somewhat constrained and that there is um, basic understanding expectations about the money supply and what that will look like in the future. Um, One other aspect or another aspect of whenever we say economic freedom is that the business environment is not too regulated. Again, this is in some senses relative, but we think that, you know, you can within reason open a business 
pretty quickly. Maybe there are some permits you have to get, but it doesn't take 300 days or three years or 30 years like it does actually in some countries. And so um, the way I started trying to address in general understanding economic development, of course, we get to, in some sense, you know, the, the economically free countries and systems are the ones that are more developed. There's a large body of work theoretically before even Adam Smith, but, you know, Adam Smith really was um, kind of the father of, of making those arguments popular. We, you know, come up through to, to Mises and Hayek and, and many others. But in the modern literature, being able to, to use modern um, econometric techniques and collect data, that's also what we see. So empirically, it supports the argument economically free countries are also the ones that are growing and more developed. So then my question was, okay, well, then why is it that we have certain countries or certain places and societies that have um, more economic freedom or institutions such as private property rights? So why is that the case? And oftentimes I felt like in reading or even having conversations with other uh, social scientists, it would be more of a shorthand to say, well, you know, the government provides those things. And it's like, I don't know, that just doesn't seem that satisfactory, especially when we look throughout history and we see what governments actually do or have done. Right. And so that kind of pushed me into when or if the government doesn't provide our formal institutions or, you know, kind of bedrock of the economic system, what are our other options? And so that's where I got to this idea or question of, okay, well, let's try to think about how cultural norms um, might matter. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not um, sophisticated. So to say informal or cultural, it can be actually quite sophisticated in some sense. It doesn't have to be either. But whenever we think about, um, again, the way that we talked about something like individualistic cultures, those will be, that's an individual or a group of individuals who actually value, for example, private property rights or being able to then define and enforce their property or contracts. And that's what um, one of the one of my research papers we we spent some time trying to actually show is that cultures that tend to have more higher levels of trust, more individual responsibility, you know, a sense of self that they what they how they choose and how they behave actually determines the quality of their life or success of their life. Those cultural norms also translate into places that have stronger protection of property. And so that was one of the first connections that I started seeing between, if we want to say, the informal institution, so the cultural norms, to mapping into and connecting to the formal institutions, as we've been discussing economic freedom. Mm-hmm. So, so like, I guess, in other words, another way to look at it is that, you know, discussing economic progress and development in general is one thing, but you wanted to kind of take a step back and basically say, okay, that economic freedom part, as you said, can't just be explained by like, oh, well, you know, the government allows for X percent of freedom. There's a lot more going on there that actually contributes to like sort of, I guess, the state or regime of economic freedom beyond just formal rules, I guess. There's also a cultural element is what you wanted to look at. That's exactly right. That's what I wanted to be able to get to. And it's still, um, I've ended up spending, you know, 15 years kind of doing this in in the sense, because it's not, it's interesting and fascinating, but it's not always, always that easy to show right? Um, convincingly. <laughs> so right. it's been fun and it is fun to still kind of get to work in and trying to do this, but it is, there's some theorizing, that goes with it. But then there's also looking at history. Let's try to get data. Let's try to show convincingly that how norms, culture, beliefs relate to 
you know, on the ground day-to-day life, but then how that will also relate to the formal rules and the codified rules that are often codified or enforced by a government or by the state. But again, it doesn't have to be, but that's, that tends to be what we would see. But so that's that you're exactly right in that um, kind of peeling back the onion to say, okay, we know that economic freedom matters, property rights matter, contract enforcement, got to have it. But it's never, you know, contracts can never be written completely and you're never going to get perfect enforcement. So what are ways that people have developed to kind of mitigate those potential costs, those transactions costs of interacting with each other? And that's where, again, kind of the cultural norms have stepped in. Um, another, another related part uh, within this kind of space within the economic literature is people have looked at different religions and how different religions have kind of served as a purpose to tr- economic transactions. It's served as, as an avenue. And so it's very, it's not um, the same, but it's very related. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We had a guest on, a little, I think if I remember correctly, Je- Jennifer Matasha Sfeely actually worked on a religious religion and culture sort of as like, you know, dispute resolution mechanisms and informal exactly. things. So it's very, that's very interesting. And, and actually, as you're kind of getting into sort of uh, treading towards, you know, discussing specific aspects of, of you know, culture and specific cultural factors, you did earlier talk about sort of there is an economic lens, we could view this through that, you know, they act as constraints, they enhance, they, 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 they do things basically, when it comes to human interaction, as opposed to just, you know, not culture isn't just what we eat, for example, what we like. So that that's very interesting. And I did want to get into more specific um, you know, factors that constrain social and economic norms. You know, one of your papers highlights, for instance, trust, respect, uh, individual self-determination, a- and obedience. And uh, I kind of don't, I didn't want to just list those off today and just let them sit there. I actually kind of wanted you to sort of really talk about each one in a little more detail um, and what you mean by that, because I think it'll really help tease out for the listeners the kinds of things at play in culture. And then maybe we can connect that dot later, how that makes you know, economic freedom work and people interacting with each other. So, I mean, when, when you say something like trust, for instance, like, what do you mean by that? How would you measure that? Like kind of, again, feel free to like, kind of take that. Cause I think, uh, upon first glance, some might think, well, how, how do you even think of that economically? How do you even measure that? And so on. So, yeah, there's a, that's an excellent question. Um, starting with trust is uh, actually in some sense where the literature also started. You see it again, if, when you read classical liberal authors, there's a lot of it that's that's somewhat implied. Um, so if we think of it in, in even a simple sense, um, if you have some sort of trust between individuals, whether they be within the family, um, across you know your neighborhood, so you get to know them and you build up um, to this through this relationship, you have some notion of trust of being that they are trustworthy and that you trust them and they believe that you are trustworthy then the way that you even interact with them is different or um, the assumptions that you make about behavior, maybe that you observe is different. And so then the the way that we would translate that into um, economic content or action that, uh, that we would care about and maybe would try to measure later on is okay. Okay. uh, Think about trade. So if it's again, contracts can't be written perfectly and it well, Oftentimes throughout history and even across the world now, they're not going to be that enforceable. So we think about court systems, even in the U.S. are backlogged. And so that's not really the first, your first choice. That's not really how you want to go about it. So to minimize those costs, to enforce a contract, um, you want to believe, before you enter into a contract, you want to believe it's enforceable. And if it's not, the 
person on the other end is going to do the right thing. Because of that, if that's true, and um, through, again, repeated interactions, you build up trust, then you're more likely to continue to trade with that individual. And then we see that on small scales. And then, of course, we also are able to observe that on large scales. So that's one aspect of trust. We can call it social trust. It's been called social capital. Think about um, Putnam, the bowling alone kind of arguments that started more in the political science literature, spilled over into economics. We kind of took it and um, refined it in a way that, again, economists care about the certain types of questions that we're going to ask. And so that's one aspect of trust. So again, if we think about it as being social trust, the way that we view other individuals, the way that we measure this, at least is what's been done in most studies, is we use our survey data. Um, so world value survey, there's um, the European value surveys, um, Afrobarometer, the Latino barometers, very similar in the um, methodology and the way that they go about asking individuals in a variety of countries, I think over, I know over a hundred countries have been surveyed by the World Value Survey, but there's a question in most of these surveys that ask something like, do you believe most people can be trusted? It's a very, hmm. you know, not fancy, it's just a very simplistic and it's yes or no. And we code percent of respondents that answered yes. And that's the way that most uh, studies have, have tried to measure social trust. Now, within these surveys, they also ask other types of trust questions. Um, you know, do you trust your family? Do you trust members in your community? Do you trust the government? And so you can get more specific because the you could have social trust but not trust the government right. or vice versa, right? And so then, and then that would also, you would theorize differently as to how that's going to impact your uh, rule of law or court system, right? How you would behave toward... Um, you know, cheating on taxes or not. So mm-hmm. there's a variety of things that then we can kind of, that falls out of those types of um, components of trust. Again, most of what we've seen in the literature um, where it's kind of the most robustly tested is this idea of social trust. And just in general, do you think most people can be trusted? Right. And and what you said towards the end there, for example, like the level of trust with the government, for example, might affect how you file taxes or interact with the yeah. official administrative <laughs> state. That's actually ties very nicely back to something you said before, which is basically you're, you're walking us through. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about culture and it's one thing to talk about formal institutions, but how people culturally are can also affect how they work with those uh, formal institutions, even if they're nominally economically free. If a bunch of people don't don't trust the government and don't want to file taxes or want to work on the black market or whatever, on paper, you could be economically free, but maybe the culture just doesn't trust the system. I don't know. Some, you know, so yeah, I, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. And that's the, what, what about the, um, what about the idea of respect? So how is that sort of like distinct and what are you, what are you talking about when, as, as that is a factor? So the way that we kind of talk about the level of respect and how that would matter in um, something like trade. So again, trading with each other or even protection of property rights mm. Is we think of the like generalized level of respect is relating to what we would call um, limited versus generalized generalized morality. So this comes out of um, Banfield. He has a, had a book in 1958, and he's discussing northern versus southern Italy and a lot of their norms. And so what we do is we relate it to the concept of if you ha- you know you're still within your small group, 
may have some notion of morality, however that's defined. And in this case, we would say, you know, some notion of respect. So I respect your space or what you say. Um, if you say that's yours, I believe that, I, I trust it, I, I respect it. So, but then that can break down in terms of, well, that's just because within our group, however that group's defined, our religion, our family, our right. ethnic, or, you know, if you speak the same language. And so at some point when someone starts looking or talking different than you, then perhaps you, that morality drops, it goes away. So it's more limited to in-group versus out-group. And so generalized respect would have more of a generalized morality in the sense of, I still carry that, my um, morals to the the next group that I'm interacting with. That's not my group. So again, property rights is is probably um, an easier example to think about. So if you have a fence up, I believe in respect to that property line. And so, or again, with trading, this is kind of the same thing that that is your, those are your crops. That's, that's yours. And I'm going to respect that. And then and if I want it, we've got to enter into some sort of trade agreement. Not that I just mm. take it. Right. And so that's how we think about generalized respect and generalized morality affecting economic outcomes. That makes sense. I can see how it's correlated with trust, not the exact same thing, but that does make a lot of sense. And how about individual self-determination as we keep piecing this puzzle together here? Individual self-determination was is one aspect to try to capture that individualism versus collectivism spectrum that I was discussing earlier. We've um, added in additional questions from those survey databases to measure individualism, but this was somewhat of a kind of an earlier and even I would say cursory way of trying to measure individualism and in the sense of individual responsibility slash um, individual determination. And so the question and the way that we kind of theorize is to think about um, how much control uh, and uh, people believe that they have over their life. So that, you know, whenever you look at the world or your life, you don't think the things that are happening to you are random or because of luck. It is because of a series of choices and consequences from that. Where that matters is that um, whether or not you're going to take responsibility for your choices and your actions and those consequences. And so individual determination is more of a, you know, do I believe that I determine the outcome of my life? And then from that, we tend to see things correlate with individual responsibility um, and and less of the collective notion. So on that, on that other extreme. Would um, it seems that that could could cut multiple ways. On the one hand, you said there's like that responsibility aspect of it, like being responsible for your own life and your own, um, you know, in- income or your wealth, essentially, if you want to get down to that. But it seems to me, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that could also cut into someone's actually like longer term view of the future or hope on with the regime that they're under. Like if they don't feel like they can actually determine, you know, the outcomes and actually their individual action will have X and Y and Z outcome. That would seem to me something that would affect someone's decision to do one thing or another. Is that also part of that category? Am I sort of misinterpreting the sort of no? That that is an excellent point. That's an excellent comment because it does make me think of a another cultural aspect that it's. I would argue is actually understudied. Is it's what um, Hofstede calls long term orientation, and it's basically this idea of um, you know, do I discount the future or not. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think that your choices matter today in terms of what your future looks like, then you're going to di- probably discount that future a lot mm-hmm. and you will behave very differently. Yeah. I mean, I think that even we can just think of it 
is um, as you age, right? Your choices and things are different. Mm-hmm. And, or if you are now diagnosed with a terminal illness, everything, yeah, perspective changes. So I think that is exactly right. in the way that cultural norms um, definitely would shape um, decision-making along the spectrum of if you have control over your life, a short run versus a long run mentality would definitely come in. Mm-hmm. And then there's the last one called o- obedience. So that one was interesting to me to read about. Why, why don't you... Uh... Again, tell us, what do you mean by obedience in this case? Obedience is also somewhat part of the individualism, collectivism perspective, the way that, again, we can hypothesize and think about how it would matter. The way that we were um, talking about it is a little bit more specific in the sense of if um, you see or tend to value teaching your, your children to be obedient, then Again, this was perhaps more in an extreme sense. You can think of the way that then that also is going to shape their um, risk-taking and then their creativity and how imaginative they are and other sorts of behavior that then we relate to innovation, entrepreneurship, um, you know, risk, risk in a financial sense that, you know, it's not, it's just what is, it's not necessarily good or bad, but You've got to take risk in, in order to figure things out, in order to solve problems. So in terms of being entrepreneurial, you don't know the future. And so you've got to try to figure it out. And the way you do that is by taking risk. And so more obedient cultures, you tend to see less risk-taking, less creativity, and less obedient cultures, you tend to see more of that. And we do have to go to a break real quick. But before we do that, I wanted to wrap up this section with sort of one sort of question that I hope puts a bow on everything we talked about. I mean, obviously, you know what I'm doing, Claudia, but I'll say it for the benefit of the audience. Most of what I'm pulling here uh, is actually from one of Claudia's paper with her co-author. It's called a Cultural Context, Explaining the Productivity of Capitalism. And now that I've sort of taken you through, uh, you know, defining some of the factors and things that you looked at actually in that paper, you know, obviously that paper actually does get into all of this empirically and does find out some conclusions about what's correlated and what's directly related and what affects what. Um, ultimately you do note, you know, uh, in that paper about how economic freedom and culture and how they sort of interplay and whether or not that's correlated with prosperity and so on and so forth. All that to say, what, what does that paper then find out when you put all this in a blender together? What did you guys discover and conclude in there? Our conclusions is along the lines of cultures that are more trusting, less obedient, um, you have more individual, you believe you have more individual self-determination and more respect. So those types of cultures combined with economic freedom is where you get your biggest bang for your buck in terms of economic growth and economic progress. So it's not just that you need to be economically free. And it's not just that you would need cultural norms such as trust and individual respect and determination and less obedience. It's that when you have both, their interaction is where you get Kind of your biggest payoff. Mm-hmm. And one word I like to use like multiple times toward the end of the paper is enhance. Like the idea that the cultural norms can only do but good if you have economic freedom as well. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And actually, you know what? We're going to take that break right now that I alluded to. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Claudia Williamson today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Alessandro Fiorello, Scott Scheel, and Ben Hobbs. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Claudia Williamson today. So, Claudia, I think the first half was great. We talked about what you meant by culture, culture in general. We talked about specific factors. We even talked about one of the papers, um, you know, and, and what it found out as far as how that sort of cultural, how those cultural aspects ultimately work with economic freedom and impact prosperity. So we're going to assume that's 100% true for the rest of the conversation because I have some more color commentary. I ultimately want to add to that exact point. So one thing that occurred to me through reading through some of the readings that you sent over is that it, it seems to me that it's one thing to understand everything we're talking about and, and these factors and cultures as sort of things that that affect individuals and that individuals possess, you know, they, and then they interact. So if, you know, one person, if A trusts B and B trusts say things go well and so on and so forth. But is it important to think about it in that way, but also think about it in a way that these sort of norms and these cultures facilitate cooperation overall and maybe i'm grasping at something a little sort of fluffy here but to to get where i'm going i really want to say like you know you mentioned transaction costs in one of your papers for instance so to me it seems like this some this kind of like magically elevates you know above like what a does with b and sort of gets into like really culture as a glue and and that facilitates economic transactions it isn't really just about a and b doing something on mass we're really talking about a cultural regime sort of thing and how it facilitates economics overall or economic interactions. I I wanted to throw that out there and see if you could take that and run with it at all, if I'm making any sense. But it was sort of a feeling I wanted to sort of throw over to you and see how you reacted. Absolutely. So even though, again, if we're just sticking to the individualism, collectivism spectrum, so even though within an individualistic culture, it's not that you're not part of a group or a collective. Right. You're probably a member of many groups, right? We all are. And, but kind of that kind of our core identity is starts with the self. And so that's the, one of the big distinctions. And why I say that though, is what it does is it changes the way that we interact with the group. And so one way to think about it is that whether or not you'll be more or less likely to interact, right? With your group and then people outside your group. And so I think it does absolutely relate to economic cooperation and, um, you know, those transactions costs in terms of how we behave toward each other. Um, so I think that that's right. It's just one of those, it's somewhat of a nuanced point with certain types of cultural traits that maybe make you lean a little bit more individualistic, but it's not that you aren't still a social creature and have, you know, collectives or groups that you're members of that you actually, I'm sure care very strongly and deeply about. It's just that kind of what you would consider, you know, part of your core belief system is an independent self first. And whereas the other side of being more collectivist is you would see it as an interdependent self first. Right. And then I think that that's how it really kind of starts to shape the type and level of cooperation, the ease of cooperation. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And now a variety of thinkers in the past and many current current ones as well. Uh, really think that there's a certain formula ultimately where cultural values sort of rest and different ones, like, you know, different factors like trust, respect, and many more sort of, it's almost, I can picture metaphorically sort of a dashboard with many dials is that if they ultimately sit the right way, what you really get down to 
is ultimately, you know, the, the spirit of sort of capitalism, the spirit of entrepreneurship, basically a culture that's most compatible sort of with a market-based society. Like, do, what are your sort of thoughts on that overall? Do you think that's, you know, too simplistic? I mean, many thinkers have done work on the idea of like the overall spirit a culture has. And that that's kind of how they they summarize the whole thing. You know, there's some spirits that a people's have that are compatible with markets, others not, so on and so forth. What are your sort of general thoughts on that idea? I think there's something to that. I think that 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 type of description makes sense, but we have to think about um, causality or kind of what are the primary movers of how you would get a capitalistic system. And um, and oftentimes when we're observing, you know, a, a society or a country at one slice in time, it may look as though well, we have capitalism and then we have these individuals who have the spirit of capitalism. Whereas I think it is probably, it, it's definitely bi-causal, but in some sense you have to have the norms first. Mm. I'm not so sure how much you can impose um, a lot of a, a capitalistic system on a culture that has more collectivist values and ex- you would not and should not expect the same outcome. Right. So that gets into some questions in terms of reform, which I think is very interesting and difficult. Um but I, I do think that like the spirit of or notion of capitalism, you know, Adam Smith talked about it in terms of it being more innate to truck barter and exchange. And I think that to me is that's what that is what we mean by the spirit of capitalism. And that does seem to make sense. I don't think it's as much as a little bit of, you know, X amount, two thirds trust mm-hmm. and one third this. And then you sprinkle on some, you know, I don't think it's that, but some notion of mine and thine. So private property rights matter, right and wrong in terms of, of on that spectrum. When something you um, do something wrong or break a rule, you suffer the you willingly suffer the consequence from that. There is something in that space that does seem to support a capitalistic system. Um, that again is where you get more of economic progress and what we term economic development that's mm-hmm. where you see when they move hand in hand when they're kind of matched or mapping onto each other in terms of both a capitalistic system and the values that's where you see the biggest the biggest payoff and and higher levels of development right no yeah i, I me personally I'm, I'm quite in line with what you sort of said in the middle there about like the idea that it's actually sort of innate an innate thing in humans like you know the, the the propensity to sort of truck barter trade like make little divisions between mine and thine whether or not you know the current thousands of pages of property law actually line up with that innate tendency it's a whole different discussion because you right. know property and sort of the mind is different than the way it's been artificially construed but but i i'm kind of glad you said that too because one of the next things i want to say is i I and I again this is I want your thoughts on this too that I think I think personally one of the dangers of sort of this idea of like you know this culture's got it this one doesn't kind of mentality is that you might sort of end up going down a path where you're sort of grafting what you think a culture is from your own lens onto one or another to basically well well you know they aren't you know they aren't very open to or they wouldn't have the propensity to be successful in a market-based society when I don't know I'm just making it up for example perhaps this is a culture or a people that have a long history of administrative state oppression on them. They really discount the future because they think there's no, you know, they may as well party today because, you know, some corrupt government's going to come in tomorrow. Maybe that's why you have a culture that's a certain way, not because they don't value long-term returns on investment, for example. So I, I think, I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that, but I think that sort of a clean division of, you know, this culture's got it, that one, that, that might be a little tricky too, like if you head down that path, right? 
Yeah. So I, th- I think you're, you're touching on exactly the right types of questions we should be asking, which is, okay, if trust isn't there or you see more um, collectivist norms, why? I think that's the, the other fl- side of this coin is, okay, in places where we're saying they don't have a capitalistic spirit or it's a, it seems less innate, it's not a, oh, well, then that's a bad culture. It's just another research question of, well, that's curious. All right, let's dive into that. Let's, And I think you will tend to see things like you were describing. They've been, there's some sort of oppression, typically from the state, or, you know, there's some um, hard constraint that has for probably many generations led them to not, to be either more obedient, to, to um, believe or to know that, you know, their success comes from the collective, comes from the state, which will then spill over into their general norms of how they would view collectives right. um, and collective responsibilities. So I think that's exactly right in terms of the way that we, we can think about that. It's not a, this is good and this is bad. It's a, this, you know, in successful capitalistic systems, these are the types of norms we tend to observe and we don't hear. Okay. And let's think about why. And then, and then again, that is where we get into potential policy or reform type questions. And so one thing I'll, I'll say it, to that is I've written some, not a lot, because again, it's it's somewhat more difficult in terms of, okay, how do you get then those types of norms in a place where they don't exist? And our kind of answer is, well, open up to more trade, open up to more markets, because when they have the ability to engage in markets, what you're going to tend to see is those norms start to flourish or, or come into play. And um, so it's, it is both sides, right? So it's, Culture affects economic freedom, but markets and economic freedom is going to have a feedback mechanism back to your norms and beliefs and your values. Right. And I, and I suppose as well, because, you know, you brought up a good point there. A lot of people, when they're speaking about economic development, it's well open the borders to trade, for example. I suppose that gets very nuanced too, right? About what kind of, you know, things are making that GDP go up, right? Like, for example, it's it's one thing, for instance, a developing nation you know, to open itself to a, uh, you know, commercial deal where, you know, three companies get a benefit for one thing versus an actual market opening up domestically for entrepreneurs to try things, for example. I think that right. that also would be a nuanced question about what kind of, quote unquote, markets are actually existing or being built mm-hmm. or being penetrated in developing countries as well. Absolutely. Um, and, and before I move on to actually just a couple more questions that'll probably actually take us to the final swing of our time. I do want to hammer on one more thing that you did touch on a couple times, but before we go forward, I want to just wrap up the point there just to make it a hundred percent clear and put a finer point on it though. So we've talked a lot about culture, obviously it's the theme of our episode, but I did just want to check in and wrap up with the point that all of what you're saying and all of this kind of thing is not to say that formal rules and institutions aren't important, but that they wouldn't be as much without certain cultural norms and attitudes. Is that sort of a fair way to like one sentence summary, like 40 minutes yeah. of our conversation? Yeah. Okay, cool. Just making sure, because I, I do want myself <laughs> and also our listeners to keep that in mind too, that saying that culture is 100% everything would be the exact wrong thing to take out of this conversation. Um, 
And moving on to something else here, that's and some of your your other papers that I've taken a look at, and and you were kind of treading into that now, which is why I want to pivot to it. To it, um, you know, they they take a look at, or at least they make some comments. I've noticed about development economists, or like even like you know development economics from like the point of view of like you know the way many politicians speak about it, for example, and and many points of view in that field. And especially, as we were saying, when it comes to poor developing nations, seem to very much focus on getting aspects of the institutions or the rules uh, correct. Um, I have to say, even a lot of people in, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, just to round everyone up, classical liberal circles will often talk about, you know, contract law, rule of law, you know, this type of all that kind of stuff, especially when it comes to developing nations and development economics. Is this, again, a reflection of sort of like an overemphasis or in sort of, you know, overzealousness for about institutions themselves, and perhaps there is more of a blind spot in that area of economics about understanding cultures? I'm, I'm not so sure that it's an overemphasis on institutions or the formal rules and a blind spot for culture. If you look at the history of development economics, and what I mean by that is like the the policy side of it, the what was recommended. And then when development economists were going to other countries to try to develop them, what was recommended, history was ignored. So in Tyranny of Experts by uh, William Easterly, he does mm-hmm. a fantastic job of, of mm-hmm. showing how much history was ignored yeah. in development economics. We, we had him on, actually. It was oh, great, I yeah. mean, he's great. Yeah, right? yeah. And so he traces that argument. And so our discipline has uh, a a blind spot for the history of a country, which includes their culture. I would still resist the notion that development economists in general are overzealous for institutions. I think what tends to happen, it's a little myopic in the sense of um, we know better, we know how. So it's more of a knowledge issue and they believe that they know how. So we need economic freedom. We need markets. We need property rights. But we don't really know how to get them in places where they don't exist, especially where it's never existed. That is difficult. And I that's where I, I feel like the hubris has stepped in or has been there in um, in development by economists and other social scientists as well and politicians um, so your political incentives are to say, you know how, and here's a policy and here we're going to do it. And whereas um, I think within a classical liberal circle, it should be easier for us to check ourselves and go, oh, yeah, wait a minute. Like we know theoretically, but we don't necessarily know how to do it in a country where it's never existed. And that is a much um, harder sometimes kind of check. And it's also oftentimes more frustrating, especially in conversations, like in talking with students, for example, that does, that's not very satisfying to them right. when they're, you know, their hearts are bleeding and they want to help people that are starving. And it's like, of course we do. Right. 
Right. No, that's a good point. That's a very interesting point and way of looking at it in that it's not just, you know, that uh, it's not that you and I and a bunch of other people can't get in a room and say, oh, you know, maybe it'd be great if this country had this, that, the other thing, whatever, for example. But once a bunch of people say thumbs up, yeah, let's go do that, for example, it's another thing to actually know what exact institutions to put in and how to actually implement that. That's a whole thing that you know, Adam Smith terms that a bunch of men and women of system can't get together and necessarily go orchestrate perfectly, right? Absolutely. Because you do have those individual humans at every step of the way that have their own wants and needs and so on. And and, and one kind of final question here before I move us to our formal wrap-up, um, again, sort of ties up, because obviously, especially for some of our listeners who are listening, have been exposed to some of these discussions and the dips and dives that we've done in them for like the first time. How should we leave people off, you know, considering culture when they're kind of assembling their own sort of framework of economic thinking in their mind? You know, we do that a lot on the show, too. I want to leave people with, you know, things that they can assemble for their own thinking as well. You know, you used at the beginning of our conversation, you know, um, you know, culture is one of the constraints at play. You know, in one of your papers, you mentioned that culture is sort of a, a filter that, you know, that the constraints pass through. Like, if you wanted to put a finer point on how people should think about culture when they're thinking about how an economy works, mm-hmm. how would you kind of summarize that for them? Well, Pete Betke says that economics um, is basically a lens to how to view the world. And I building off of that, culture provides kind of a shade on your lens. And so if we think of economics, it's a certain toolkit, it's a certain way of viewing the world. And when everything gets filtered through that, economists tend to think it's very illuminating. I would argue that what, what when you add in the piece of culture is that it is adding like a tent. And so when you, you and I may see, see something, but also see something that's very different. Like it's the same thing, but the way you interpret it or the way you observe it or the way then you would interact with it is very different than how I would. And I tend to think that that is our kind of our cultural shade on the way that we view the world. Um, so another, another building off of kind of how we've talked about culture and entrepreneurship and development, cultural norms will will shape even how you would see an entrepreneurial opportunity or a profit opportunity, the ability to see it. Hmm. That's just this, it is like our ability to see things a certain way and culture shapes that in all aspects of our life, not just with entrepreneurship or innovation, but it really does then just shape like how we see things. And it's not just about, an economic transaction, it does shape then like how you see the entire world around you. Right. Yeah. That makes it, it's not just about if there's capital there that yeah. can be invested or like, you know, that there is a risk that can be taken, whether or not someone sees it that way is an entirely different question. That's a very yeah. interesting point. And, and with that, I would like us to move to our formal wrap up here. And uh, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest ultimately has the last word to put her finer point on everything and bring the conversation full circle. So j- I just sort of asked you about culture in general there, but bringing us back to our our main theme for the final time here, let me ask you our official last question, which is what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether then, in fact, culture affects economic progress? In other words, if you wanted to someone to leave listening to us here with one or two or just a few takeaways, if anything, on that question, what would that be? Well, building off of what we were just talking about and viewing culture as a way to see the world, from that, then it's going to shape your own behavior, your own choices, and how you interact with other people. And so from that, then it absolutely affects economic progress and economic development, however development is even defined. 
And so we have to, so one of the things that I think is just important, and again, this is more of just economics in general, is that value is subjective. What I value is going to be different than what you value. And how much you value, it's going to be different than how much I value. So we think about all the trade-offs that we face in the world today. And it's not a right or wrong. It's just culture shapes our values. And that value is subjective. And so that is something that I think will help us in being able to engage in more civil discourse, to be able to come together on subjects that we need to be talking about. But if we come with the kind of mental check of, okay, what you value might be different than what I value because of cultural norms or biases or beliefs or religious views, whatever they might be, but we still need to talk to each other in order to address the issues surrounding us. And so I think that that helps whenever you put it in a context like that, that values are subjective and it's not about, it's not a right or wrong. And it helps us to be able to figure out how to get along and solve real world problems today. Great. I think we'll leave it there. Claudia Williamson, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.